When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Slate Money is brought to you by Goldman Sachs. Get information about developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy on the firm's podcast, Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, available on iTunes. And by SAP HANA. SAP HANA helps the world's best companies get the answers they need to become more agile, develop new streams of revenue, and predict the future. Run SAP and run simple. Visit sap.com slash reimagine to learn more. And by MileIQ. If you're one of the 60 million Americans who drive for work, then you know that your miles are your dollars. Every mile you don't log is money that you're losing. MileIQ is the only mileage tracker app that detects, logs, and calculates your miles for you, ensuring that every mile is accounted for and no dollar is lost. Try MileIQ for free today by texting Slate Money to 31996. That's Slate Money to 31996. I'm Mike Pesca, host of The Gist. It's a daily show about news and culture and whatever flits across my consciousness. It's good. It's funny. You'll like it. So recently we had a series of conversations with Fordham University criminologist John Pfaff. The issue was mass incarceration and how reform's just not that easy. At some point, we're going to have to start asking how are we going to treat violent offenders differently? And no one is really talking about that at all. Subscribe to The Gist at iTunes.com slash Panoply or wherever you get your podcasts. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Hidden Danger edition of Sleep Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm joined, as always, by Kathy O'Neill, the blogger and data scientist. She's, what's your website? What? Oh, mathbabe.org. Mathbabe. Yes. Go check it out. There's all manner of awesome wonkery going on there. Um, we also have Slate's Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. Hello, Felix. But we most excitingly, most importantly, and most specially yes. have the one and only Greg Ip. Hi, Greg. Hello, Felix. At any given time, there is the most important journalist in financial journalism, who is the guy who has the secret back channel to the Fed chair and can basically 
know what the Fed is going to do before the Fed even does it. And once upon a time, that man was Greg Ibbett. It's now John Hilsenrath. But Greg Ibbett basically had this horrible job where he had to do reporting and learn about the Fed and that kind of stuff. And then eventually he graduated to awesome columnist status at The Economist. And now you're back at the journal. I basically got tired of doing real work, which involved trying to figure out what the Fed was going to do. And I found that involved a lot less effort and time to just write what I thought the Fed should do. <laughs> it's a lot easier. It it's really not is. easy being John Hilton. Yeah, I can no, do that. No, it isn't. I mean, Jeez. John actually needs facts and information and sources. Yeah. Uh, whereas you, on the other hand, have such an easy life in your new job that you can write an entire book in your spare time. Well, that's right. Yes. In fact, I actually did. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the book? My book is called Foolproof, Why Safety Can Be Dangerous and How Danger Makes Us Safe. Okay. We are going to talk about that. Um, we are also going to talk about Marriott buying Starwood. We're going to talk about Square and initial public offerings. But let's start with this book. We like paradoxes here on Slate Money. And this is my favorite paradox, or one of my favorite paradoxes, which is that the more we try to make ourselves safe, the more we just basically end up putting huge amounts of risk into the tails and, and making it likely that the entire world is going to blow up. Is that more or less the book? Yeah, it, it, it really is. And it was kind of the inspiration for the book because I think that more or less explains what happened to the U.S. economy in 2008. We were too safe. We were too safe. So in your book, you, you actually sort of like categorize people into the people that try, the engineers that are the ones that try to make things safer, and the ecologists who are like, it's not a good idea, and they're skeptical of it. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about those categories, and, and especially like how that played into the, the financial crisis? Sure. Well, the philosophical approach to how we deal with the innate uh, chaos and instability of life, in my telling, dates back to the progressive era about a century ago. Uh, in the financial world, there was the panic of 1907, which led to the creation of the Federal Reserve so that we would always have the ability to lend to banks who were being besieged by depositors, and therefore the founders thought we would never, ever have a financial panic again. And what we discovered was that at least in the 25 years before the Great financial crisis, the Fed was so darn effective at that job. They pulled down inflation. They basically got rid of bad recessions. It led to actually a huge increase in risk-taking and the development of all sorts of new financial innovations that were designed to make bankers and investors feel safe when, in fact, they were just transferring risk around and creating more risk in the system. So Alan Greenspan had this idea with all of these sophisticated financial products that they were a really good idea because they moved risk to people who wanted a very specific kind of risk, and they took it away from people who didn't want risk. And then what we discovered in the crisis was that while Alan Greenspan was convinced there were a bunch of people out there who were risk takers who wanted very specific kinds of risk, that wasn't true. And the, really what was happening was there was a whole bunch of people out there who were incredibly risk averse, who were buying AAA securities because they didn't want risk, and that there was no one actually taking the risk. And it wound up blowing up entirely, exactly in the faces of the people who couldn't afford the losses. That's right. Um, Alan Greenspan and Paul Volcker before him thought of a world in which banks were the main providers of finance and that financial crises were mostly about banks failing. So over the course of the 80s and 90s, as regulations were tightened on banks, and we should remember that, regulations did get tougher on banks. It actually drove lending and risk 
out to what we now call the shadow banks. And these institutions developed new ways of funding themselves, issuing things like commercial paper and so-called repo loans, which were basically, and AAA-rated mortgage-backed securities, which were structured to be as seem as safe as bank deposits. But they weren't really because they were collateralized with what turned out to be risky stuff. And all the individual institutions who individually thought they were protecting themselves because they had bought only safe paper or, for example, they had bought insurance against default from AIG discovered that the sellers of all that risk had sold so much of it that the entire system was in danger once asset prices began to fall. So one of the... One of the overarching points of this book is it's this is not just a finance issue. This is all of life. It's you know it's kind of philosophical that way. It's you know the, this principle that in a sense safety makes us take risks and creates new dangers applies to forest fire way we fight forest fires, deal with floods, cars. Can you, can you just talk a little bit about that more and elaborate on it? Sure. And going back to my example about the Progressive Era, the U.S. Forest Service was founded around the same time as the Federal Reserve, and for much the same reason. There was a huge fire in 1910. And uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, said, uh, <clears throat> empowered the uh, the Forest Service to basically put all wildfires out because it was seen as destructive and unnecessary waste. Well, what we now know is that actually fire is an essential part of the ecosystem. It helps clear out the underbrush. It uh, kills weak trees but leaves a strong one standing. And if you suppress fires too much, you actually leave the forest choking with fuel and the fires you get are worse. And that is one of the reasons why this year, for example, will be one of, if not the worst, wildfire seasons on record. It is true that the climate is getting warmer, but it's also true that a century of trying to essentially control wildfire has perversely had the opposite impact. Flooding is a similar story. I mean, people have been building their homes, their farms, their businesses on the coast next to rivers for centuries, for thousands of years, because that's the most prosperous place to be. And then they build levees and other protections to protect themselves from the fact that the water will periodically flood. Well, that just guarantees that they will build more next to the water. And when the levees finally fail the destruction will be greater. Can I, let me push back against this like categorization of engineers versus ecologists because I feel like I'm not either of them personally. Um, but specifically, let's let's talk about the forest fire thing. I feel like what you just described is just us being kind of dumb. You know, you're just like, maybe the, the engineers were like, oh, let's not let forest fires happen. And then it ended up being the wrong thing to do. But if I would have, were to double down on the engineering side, I would say, let's I- incorporate what we now know about long-term effects of doing this short-term thing and actually try to optimize it with better information. But I think that a few academic engineers can think that way. And they will think, well, yes, in order to minimize you know, long-term damages, what we need is a bunch of short-term damages, and we should be able to live with the short-term... And controlled short-term damages. And controlled short-term damages. But there are very few... In practice, there are very few places where that's possible. For instance, you talk in your book about airlines, and there's almost nothing in the airline industry which is considered to be an acceptable short-term damage. No one says, well, it's okay if there's the occasional plane crash now and then because that might prevent a huge global disaster down the road if it turns out that all of these pilots don't know how to fly anymore because all of the planes have been automated. You know, That kind of thinking works great in 
theory, but in practice, it's very hard to implement. Well, that's exactly right. And so I did not end up myself siding with the engineers who want to control everything or the ecologists who just basically want to let nature and markets have their way because I empathize with the people who are actually in the position of having to make the decision. Uh, would I have actually let Lehman go or would I have saved it? I don't know. And knowing what we know now... Saving Lehman might have been the right idea. On the other hand, does that mean they should have let Bear Stearns go because then people would have protected themselves against the eventual failure of Lehman? These are very difficult things to game out, especially if you're the person in the hot seat having to make the decision in that moment. The same applies, frankly, to forest fires. And I interviewed people who've had to make that decision. The forests are not these pristine expanses of uninhabited wilderness from 200 years ago. If you decide to let a fire burn, which is the ecologically wise thing to do, you are taking a risk that it will destroy some homes and kill some people. So to your question, Kathy, which is exactly the right one, how do we take the best that we know about science and actually try and get the trade-off right? Well, one of the things I talk about in my book is that uh, there are certain principles that turn out to be good ways of protecting ourselves against uh, disaster, which do not uh, have that same innate risk of unintended consequences. And I talk about the importance of space. For example, if you don't want to rely on the Forest Service always saving you from a fire, Build a perimeter around your home so that when the forest nearby catches fire, it won't throw flames onto your house. And in some jurisdictions, that increasingly is a building code requirement. Forests can be allowed to burn, and you don't put human lives at risk trying to put them out, and you don't sort of have that uh, suppression issue later so on. So tell me about this idea that we're putting a bunch of the onus onto individuals. Like, and We're saying that if you want to be a safe driver, you should leave space around your car. If you want to save your house from being burned, you should leave space around your house. And Well, is that really an individual thing? I mean, you just said it's a building code. Yeah, that's that's a, actually kind of a, a municipality. A but but one, of the, one of the more interesting debates is, is around these personal things. When we buckle up in a car or when we put a helmet on as a bicycle rider, does that actually make us safer or does that just make us act in a riskier way? Um, it turns out that you can't predict in advance which is going to happen. I thought that when I looked into this issue of seatbelts, we would find what the so-called Peltzman effect predicted, which is that people with seatbelts would drive faster and kill more pedestrians. But it turns out that the most careful research suggests that, in fact, seatbelts do save lives. But it turns out that anti-lock brakes do not. People seem to drive differently when they have anti-lock brakes. People forget they're wearing seatbelts so they don't drive differently. But when they have a car that has a new technology like anti-lock brakes, they drive differently. The same is true of financial derivatives. Banks who have new hedging instruments will take risks and make loans that they wouldn't otherwise. So they have in some sense responded to this innovation by increasing their risk appetite. I'm all for very good, smart regulation. I want regulations to be based in evidence. But I do think that we cannot legislate people's attitudes about risk. And I'll give you one example. BP had a lot of disasters before the Macondo oil spill, and they were repeatedly fined and investigated for it. And it didn't seem to have any fundamental effect on the company's risk appetite. So when they encountered problems in the Macondo well, they kept on drilling. Now, you compare that to Exxon, Exxon, which after the Valdez disaster, top to bottom altered the company's culture to emphasize safety and risk awareness at every step of the way. And four years before Macondo, they were drilling a very similar well in the Gulf of Mexico. They encountered problems, and they abandoned it at a very high cost. I also don't know how you legislate or regulate those types of habits. Well, I mean, can I just, I mean, if you find them much, 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 much more, presumably it would be a profit issue for the mistakes they do make, the smaller mistakes, right? So what you're saying is that they did get caught and they 
they did get punished, well, but Kathy, not very much. Well, no, because... Not enough for them to pay attention. Because, no, but I think Greg's point is that the fines that Exxon were facing were exactly the same as the fines that BP was facing, but, but they reacted in two different ways. You can't predict, like, what is the level of fine which will have a certain effect. Yes. M- moreover... A lot of these tail risks don't happen often enough for them to actually have that effect on our behavior. Uh, for example, even the instance of hurricanes, which happen often enough that you think that we would alter our behavior to take that into account. But it doesn't. Studies show that houses that are built within a few years of a hurricane withstand the next hurricane better than others because the memory of that latest disaster means people build that into their structure. But as time goes on, the housing codes, it's not the housing codes, but what people build becomes weaker and more people drop their hurricane insurance. So uh, <laughs> it's just kind of natural that the human mind can't always... E- always behave with that sort of... Let me, let me, um, so one of the ways I kind of simplified a lot of, for myself, a lot of the points you're making in this book is just the idea when we try to regulate risk, we're always fighting the last war, right? And in doing that, we're breeding new risks. We almost, by definition, we can't predict. Uh, it just It's that simple. It's We see something went wrong, we try to fix it, and thereby set in motion whatever's going to go wrong the next time. So that, that's why I thought you know, this idea of the rule of space that you bring up is... is Really interesting. You have to kind of have a, a, a safety mechanism that works in every situation. You can't be trying to regulate and fix individual things that might go wrong, because by definition, you don't know what's going to go wrong. So let me end with just asking about coming back to the big financial crisis, because that was obviously the impetus for a lot of us thinking about these things. You're right that the banks were very happy to make very risky mortgage loans because they had this originate to distribute model and they knew that the mortgage loans wouldn't end up on their own books. They would get sold off to someone else who quote unquote wanted the risk. It turns out the people they were selling the mortgage loans to didn't want the risk, which is why they had all these AAA ratings and whatnot and everything blew up. Knowing now, in hindsight, what was going on, like, how should we have, with perfect information, seen the problem and reacted to the problem? What would have been the way to create this space that you think we need? The most obvious thing is that most of the intermediaries who were involved with that should have had more capital. Now, it turns out that the banks actually did have a lot of capital, but a lot of the other sort of shadow banks, like the investment banks, didn't have enough. Fannie and Freddie didn't have enough. Knowing what we know now, we would have gone back and created a regime that would have required to ha- them to have more capital. And I would have done more to try and really drive home the point that this stuff they thought was safe really wasn't safe. There was something fundamentally wrong with giving these exotic securities, which had been existence by that point for just a few years, the same rating as the United States which had been existent for 200 years. There was something just cognitively wrong that enabled people to equate the safety of something like that that had never been tested with the republic that had been tested quite a lot. I don't I would like call it co-opted engineers. <laughs> that, that's you know, not... you, you're talking about you know the engineers were in charge of making things safe and also measuring the the risk. Well, they and we it goes back to I think Jordan the point that you were making about the last war is that they basically d- had models, and I want to give them. I don't want to say that these guys had bad intentions, but they looked at the history and they said. Well, we've never seen a national housing price collapse, which would create the kind of correlations which would cause these mortgage-backed securities structured this way to have this high level of defaults. So we think that given that modeling, we're going to give them AAA. But of course, the very fact that everybody believed the same thing, you know, enabled a rush of money into the mortgage space and an inflation of home values that guaranteed the national housing bust we never had before was going to happen. If I could go back in time, I would 
look, I don't like having the government step in and tell private companies what to do, but there had to have been a role. There must be a way to stop rating agencies from conveying this false sense of safety where it doesn't exist. Thank you. Greg, your, your book is in all good bookstores now. It's called Foolproof. Everyone should go out and buy it. Slate Money is sponsored this week by SAP HANA, which helps the world's best companies get the answers they need to become more agile, develop new streams of revenue, and predict the future. Run SAP, run simple. Visit sap.com slash reimagine to learn more. Kathy? Yes. What is your favorite merger of the week? My favorite merger is that Marriott Hotels chain has bought the Starwood Hotel chain. Or has announced that it is going to. Oh, right. I kind of, th- I kind of in the back of my head, think there might be a bidding war and someone else is going to try and swoop in and is, buy Starwood. Is that wishful thinking on your part, Felix? <laughs> because a lot of people who travel a lot are freaking out right now. There's a whole class of people called Starwood fanatics. And I actually am one of them. Believe it or not. Really? I mean, not really. I wouldn't have predicted that. No, Honestly, not really. I would not not really. Do, do, do you stay in a lot of St. Regis I just happen resorts? to be a Starwood member. I have, like, Starwood member privileges. Which, Can you list, that, list your favorite Starwood hotels? I don't even, I don't really know what they are. But, like, the, the there, po- There's two in Florence. They're across the great grand square from each other. They're both owned by Starwood. They're both amazing. One's called the Excelsior and the other one's called the Palace or something like that. Have you stayed in both of them, Felix? I have not stayed in both of them. <laughs> well, to, just in case people don't know, they, Starwood owns both the Weston chain and the Sheridan chain, for example. But they also have lots of really cool boutique hotels that people are in love with. And they're pretty fancy. And they have 1,300 hotels altogether with 21 million elite members. To compare it to Marriott, which has 4,200, three times more, a little more than three times more uh, number of hotels and almost three times as many members. But the hotels members. they have are like Springfield suites. They're not, they're no frills. Yeah, so, so basically, no frills. there's a whole bunch of well, business. They do, um, Although they have Ritz College. Ritz Carlton. Carlton. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there are a whole bunch of business cla- travelers right now who are, who are really upset because fancy Starwood hotels got bought by middle to working class uh, Marriott and they are. They're fearful that they will no longer get the deluxe service they once did. They almost um, certainly won't. With their, uh, with all of their so points. Why, why so why do you say that, Kathy? Why do you say, why are you so convinced that these Starwood hotels who are doing a very good job of creating a lot of loyalty in their customers, and that's obviously the job of the hospitality industry is to try and get people to come back. Why do you think that a simple change of ownership is going to cause all of that to come to a screeching halt. Not entirely, but for two reasons. One is that, you know, Starwood um, elite members, it's a more elite status, and they get things like guaranteed 4 p.m. checkouts. When you have four times as many members and they all prefer the same hotel in a given city, say, then it's just hard to guarantee that kind of thing to all the people who happen to stay in the hotel at the same time. It's just a numbers thing. There's more variance. So there's, uh, you know, hotels have to manage the number of rooms they have and they have people coming in and people leaving. So it's just unlikely that they're going to be able to keep that specific frill. And the other thing is that now that these two hotel chains look to be merging, they're going to be 50% larger than any other hotel chain. So the, the other thing is the elite status members will have no leverage. Where are they going to go? They're not going to go anywhere. So they just don't need to give they them as much the stuff. Yeah. I mean, the, the real reason Starwood members were, were treated so well is because they had to be treated well to be kept. 
And that doesn't that bother you a little bit? Like when you see them merging, when you see like three of the five largest health insurance companies merging, the two biggest beer companies merging, I mean, it seems like it's more about whether you get your favorite brew or your Starwood points. I mean, you actually have less choice. And uh, I'm starting to get a little bit worried about this. I mean, it's going to be like a record year for mergers. But I just look at industry after industry after industry, and you have fewer people to choose from. I mean, when American Airlines and, and uh, United States Airways uh, announced a merger, I'm sure a lot of things, a lot of people, the first thing they worried about was, gosh, what happens to my points and so on. But ultimately, what they should have worried about is what happens to my airfare and what happens to my choice of routes. And if these two companies, I mean, uh, I believe in New York, they will have 20% of the hotel rooms. 25%. 25%. Washington, D.C. is sort of similar. That's a pretty big chunk of the market. Now, this is where I, I push back. When airlines merge, when United and Continental merge, they became one airline. United. When American Airlines and U.S. Airways merged, they became one airline, American. No one is proposing or thinking that Marriott and Sheraton are going to merge and just become one chain. No one is actually saying that there's going to be less choice. Both of, like, Starwood is a really good example because it has, you know, a dozen odd brands already. They're very different. No one's going to turn a Sheraton into a W. No one's going to turn a St. Regis into a Westin, you know. Well, maybe those two could happen. But um, (laughs) in general, what we see is that Starwood has done a very good job of creating a bunch of separate brands with their own identities, and those are going to remain. And the only real question is, does the ownership of those brands make a difference? If the Sheraton brand is owned by the same company that owns the Marriott brand, does that affect the pricing power of each brand? And I'm not sure that it does. No, I I think it absolutely has to, because if you're the owner of this combined company and you're trying to decide where to put new hotels, before, if Marriott was in a market and Starwood wasn't, Starwood would say, we have to be in that market. And they would put a hotel there, and then the potential, you know, traveler now has more hotels uh, to choose from. And now that's not the case. The combined company doesn't have to compete against itself. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want to presume that they will have so much market share in these markets that it's definitely a monopolistic problem and we need to do something about it. All I'm saying is that the margin, it does bother me. And absolutely, I think the fact that they have different brand names is a little bit of a trick of the light because at the uh, top level in the back office, they are positioning those brands not to compete against each other. So I'm actually a little bit more with Felix on this one, I think, because these are two two companies that serve very different levels of the market merging, you know, to come back to like the beer merger uh, analogy, to me, this is more like Anheuser-Busch buying, you know, Goose Island, a a craft brewer, than it is like Anheuser-Busch or or InBev buying uh, the maker of Miller, right? You know, if they're buying Miller, they're, they're trying to buy something that is an equivalent brand, and it's the same market, and they're serving the same customers, and just concentrates their power. When you're buying, if they're buying a craft brewer, they're they're obviously playing to a different audience. It seems like, and that is the source of all this anxiety on the part of Starwood's uh, customers, is that they've always been gotten this wonderful treatment because they are a, I guess, basically a higher, you know, they are wealthier, higher cut, cut of customer. Is I'm that going to continue? I'm going to just have to side with Greg here. <laughs> <laughs> so I, 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 in a, in a yeah. local situation, you know, they're going to be c- competing on things like if. You know, they might have a local monopoly in a given area for hotels, and they, at the very least, compete on things like free Wi-Fi. Do you have to pay for your Wi-Fi? And then if you think about it, why not compete on prices? Because, because A, there's not quite as much overlap as you think. One of the reasons that Marriott wanted to buy Starwood is because Starwood is more international and Marriott is more domestic. But I think the big thing which we're missing here is that 
the competition in many ways is not between hotels, but it's between hotels on the one side and the huge internet booking sites on the other. Yes, and so, Airbnb. Uh, and Airbnb. Well, I'm coming to Airbnb. Yeah. So uh, what you have is Expedia, which owns Orbitz, and drives a huge amount of traffic to, to hotel bookings. Um, you have Google, which obviously is a giant, and you have Travelocity and Priceline. And these massive booking websites have a huge amount of pricing power, which means that they can take up to 25% of the cost of a hotel room for themselves. In order to be able to push back against that power, in order for the hotels to be able to keep their revenue for themselves and invest it in their hotels rather than just give it to a website which uses it as pure profit, they need to merge, they need to get bigger, they need more clout. And this is exactly what's happening, is that we're finally seeing hotel chains which are big enough to be able to stand up to the Expedias of the world. And especially now, with the rise of Airbnb, which is the a sort of double threat, because it's not just a booking website. It's not just a place where you go to find somewhere to stay. It's also the provider, in many ways, of, of those places where you stay. So you go there and you don't... And if I go to Airbnb to find somewhere to stay, the hotel chains get nothing because I wind up staying in someone's house instead. In order to be able to stand up to that threat, again, it really helps to be bigger. I... Let me just push back on that a little bit. It's interesting that you bring up this idea of bargaining power because uh, there's been a lot of concern about mergers between hospitals reducing competition in the uh, provision of medical uh, services. And the hospitals will often say, we need to merge so that we have the bargaining power with the insurers because they're merging too. And the Department of Justice recently put out a uh, – gave a spe- somebody from the Department of Justice recently gave a speech saying – Getting bargaining leverage is not a justifiable reason for gaining oligopoly. It doesn't actually benefit the customers. It may benefit the shareholders. It doesn't necessarily benefit the customers. When I look at the fact that these booking websites are merging and getting bigger, I worry about the, the concentration there. And again, I, I didn't even know that like a lot of these booking websites are actually the same company, Expedia. Who do they own? They own Orbitz. Orbitz yeah. and uh, one other one, I think. So, Quite a lot, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure a world in which you have a handful of big booking websites competing with a handful of big uh, uh, hotel suppliers is a good one for the customer. I do agree, though, with your point about Airbnb. I mean, this is a genuinely new business model, which could be very, very uh, beneficial for the customer. And let me let me also just sort of add on to this, that people might have the wrong impression about what the hotel business actually is nowadays. Like, it used to be that hotels, hotel chains would own the properties and manage the hotels. It's no longer true that they own that many of the properties. Well, they, I they think own Marriott some of them. does. I think that's the difference between Marriott and Starwood. Well, Starwood for Marriott sure. Marriott is is much better at owning and operating properties. Starwood, the hotels are not generally owned by Starwood itself. Yes. Well, I'm just saying the industry as a whole is becoming much more of a, a franchising, branding kind of thing. So it's getting like further away from like the concrete actual hotel buildings and more towards this kind of competitive online business of who can get who's who which brand is well known and who can get the customers. And and there's one other brand that we do need to bring in here which again is it comes back to this whole question of bargaining ability which is American Express. One of the main reasons why Starwood has so many loyalists is because it has a particularly attractive rewards card. It's called the Starwood Preferred Guest Card. It's issued by American Express and it regularly comes in the top one or two cards in the 
impartial rankings of like best credit cards out there. And what American Express does is it pays hundreds of millions of dollars a year to Starwood for a bunch of Starwood points, which it then gives out, you know, for every dollar that you spend on the card. And it makes that money back in terms of the interest it charges to people who pay that, you know, don't pay their full bill every month in terms of the annual fee, in terms of the interchange fee. And again, you know, this is somewhere where a big combined Marriott Starwood could have a lot of negotiating clout with American Express and get even more money from Amex to help them optimize their, you know, the people staying in their hotels. And the question is, like, who's that good for? Just the companies or for the actual hotel customers? It also makes me wonder about currencies. You know, we think sometimes people think of these loyalty points as a kind of currency, mm-hmm. but it turns out that if, you know, if there's a merger or something, they just, I guess they just go away. No, well, they the, don't go away. They're, they're not going to go away. If they're going to keep the loyalty points and then at some point probably maybe down the road they might merge them but it's very very uncommon in a merger for loyalty points to go away precisely because they are so valuable to the companies if you make them go away you're losing an income stream of hundreds of millions of dollars a year from american express or whoever it's not in anyone's interest to make them go away so it's like the italian lira that you held on the day after they introduced the euro it's not worthless you actually get to exchange it for something exactly is it watered down though well so one of the fears of the starwood points holders is that marriott points have historically been devalued more quickly than Starwood points. All points devalue. The the first rule of airline miles, hotel points, or any other kind of, you know, corporate-issued pseudo-currency is you want to spend them as quickly as possible because they will only become less valuable. Exactly, they're inflationary. Inflationary. You get get price inflation with these things and you want to spend them quickly. Um, The inflation in Marriott points has historically been higher than the inflation in Starwood points and some of the Starwood customers are worried that they're going to wind up needing to spend many, many more points than they used to in order to get the swanky hotel rooms. And there, don't you think the lesson of the airlines is that uh, airline mergers do tend to, in the end, result in more restrictions on the use of points? Yes, and I'm all in favor of that because I think this whole weird thing that you have in America about like people changing planes in obscure places and spending an extra two hours to get to where they want to go just because they're loyal to a certain airline is completely insane. Well, that, that is crazy. That is I thought you were going to say because sort of I'm already an elite that. member and I don't want more people to become. <laughs> there's, a, there's a behavioral economics dissertation in there somewhere about people who will add three hours to their trip to save like a hundred dollars in it is, points. <laughs> it is very weird. Not to mention the mileage runs. We're going to have a whole episode of Slate Money on the weird behavioral economics of mileage runs. Um, Slate Money is also sponsored this week by MileIQ, which I've had a lot of good feedback on this one. This is the app which makes you money. Because you drive a car, you are quite possibly driving your car right now, listening to this, you invariably wind up driving it for some kind of work-related purpose. And if you're anyone like me, you're lazy and you don't want to go through all of the hassle of the money you can legitimately get repaid for doing all of that driving for work. But all you need to do is download the MileIQ app. The average MileIQ user logs $547 a month in drives. You could be claiming more than $6,000 a year. It's just 
money you're leaving on the table if you're not claiming it. It makes it incredibly easy to claim it because it's just sitting there on your phone. And when you go for a drive, your phone knows that you're driving and you go slick, slick, click. You identify which of those drives were work related. And then the app does the rest. So text slate money to 31996 to start your 40 drive free trial. And if you create an account this week, you'll get 20% off an annual plan. So text Slate Money to 31996. You'll get a free trial and you'll get 20% off an annual plan. Jordan. Yes. What was the hot IPO news of the week? It's a company that our listeners have gotten pretty familiar with on Slate Money. Uh, it was Square, uh, the payments company run by Jack Dorsey, who also runs Twitter on the side or full-time, I don't know, half-time. Anyway, Square finally had its IPO. It was one of the many, many so-called unicorns that are out there. The uh, private tech companies uh, that are loosely called startups worth more than a billion dollars. Um, and there was a little bit of controversy. Originally, they were pricing their IPO around $11 to $13 a share. And then at the very last minute, they slashed it down to $9 a share. Um, then they IPO'd. They started. They made the offering. Now, now, just to be clear, yeah, when they were private, yeah. they raised a Series D round at eleven-ish um, dollars a share. So, yes. and then they raised a much bigger Series E round at about fifteen dollars a share. So, when they went public, they went public at a price which was lower than their private valuations had been. I'm going to insert myself here just for a second because just for the listeners around us who don't know exactly how an IPO works, how is it, it it's, it's like free market. We, we think that the, the price is what it is, but somehow with the IPO, they get to choose the price. Could someone explain this? I can explain this. An IPO has something called an underwriter. When you take a, co a company public, you don't just drop a whole bunch of shares onto the market and say, knock yourselves out. You need to sell those shares to someone. There needs to be a first owner of the public shares. What you can't do is just say, I'm the seller, line up, and I'm going to sell to whoever the highest bidder is. What you do is you sell to the underwriter, who's a consortium of banks. The banks then place the shares with a large number of investors at a certain price. And then this is all arranged beforehand. This is all happens in the days before the IPO okay. or the day before the IPO, basically. And then the investors who get given the shares or, or who get sold the shares at the price, in this case, nine dollars, then on the first day of trading, they're allowed to sell as many or as few of those shares as they like for whatever price they like. Yeah, Got the, it. The Thank bottom you. line is that by selling to the underwriter. First, you're guaranteed a certain share price. That's where it starts. Got it. And so, well, no, the the, the first share price is no. set by the market. Yeah, but the, the opening the company, price yeah. is set by the market. But you need a price at which you sell to the first set of investors before it starts trading, and that's the price that we're talking about here. Okay. Anyway, so nine dollars in this case. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So the what happened after? So it IPOs at nine dollars, um, and then it immediately shoots up. It pops, as they put it. It goes up to about $13 or more per share. thirteen fifty, I think, by the end. It was up 45% by the end of the day, um, which was great for people who were holding the stock. Uh, or obviously people, the underwriters. Uh, or, people, or the investors. Yeah, exactly. For the people who got IPO stock. It was great for uh, people who actually were, you know, had 
invested early on privately in it. I was looking at a chart from Matt Levine over at Bloomberg, who was basically doing the math and showed that by the end of the day, pretty much everyone had made money. And, uh, and the reason, and this is the fascinating, because yeah. the question is, if I bought in in a Series E at $15 a share, and then the stock is trading at $13 a share, how is it that I could make money? Greg, what's the word? <laughs> Ratchet. 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 Some of our some of our listeners might be familiar with that as a hip hop term. However, it also <laughs> it also has applications in finance. Do tell us more. This is the bit where you look at words and they mean different things in different contexts. And the word we're going to look at today is valuation. And valuation is something which most people understand in the context of public markets, which is just you take the number of shares outstanding, you multiply it by the share price, and that's the valuation of the company. In the private markets, a little bit different because it's not shares, really. What they're doing is they're buying highly complex securities, which definitely have an equity component to them, but which also have all manner of other weird debt-like and preferred stock-like components to them. And people are multiplying the shares outstanding by those highly complex securities and coming up with a valuation, which is not comparable to the kind of valuation you have in a pure equity situation like we have with Square right now. So what you had in the Series E was people paying $15 a share for something. But it wasn't purely a share of stock that they were buying. They were buying a preferred share, which specifically had this whole extra option value on it, which said that if the company went public at anything less than $18 a share, then the holders of that security would get a whole bunch of extra stuff. And what happened was that Square ended up having to issue $93 million more stock to give to the holders of Series E securities in order to make up for the fact that it went public at less than $18 a so, share. Okay, the ratchet beautiful is explanation. It's insurance. But it's, it, the ratchet is insurance. It. Yeah. But it, it's still confusing to me because now they're, they've created all these new shares. Doesn't that water down the price of the old shares? <laughs> no, it, it waters down. Yes, absolutely. It's called dilutive. But what happens is that tech companies, and in fact all companies, issue new shares all the time for any number of reasons. They might want to, for instance, Marriott, when it's buying Starwood, is going to issue millions of shares to buy Starwood. It's paying almost entirely in stock. Um, companies issue stock options all the time to their executives and restricted stock units, um, saying, like, we're just going to issue shares out of nothing. Shares are a little bit like loyalty points. You can issue as many of them as you like, and there's as much inflation or dilution as you like. Although I think what's interesting here is that you're seeing a textbook case of why the private markets are fundamentally different from the public markets. In the public markets, a common share is a common share is a common share, except for those instances where, for example, a family controls a business and has multiple voting power. In the private market, they are repeatedly structuring these shares so that a share is not a share is not a share because some people who are coming in later are de facto getting warrants or options with their shares. I like it to say it's almost not even like a common equity investment at all. It's almost like a convertible bond. I'm going to give you this money, and my principal is protected. I will never get back less than I give you, no matter what happens to the share price. But if the share price goes up, I kept to capture all that upside. In, in and the indeed, interesting early is, rounds <laughs> of investment, often if you have a, what's known as a seed round for a private company, which is before the Series A, um, it doesn't have any valuation at all. These, you, what everyone gets is these 
convertible notes. And what they convert into is whatever the price is in the Series A. And it's kind of like fun. I mean, I love financial innovation, and I love the fact that people are finding interesting ways to raise funds. And to me, as long as that is between consenting adults, that's fine. (laughs) These are rich people, okay? They have the right to put their money into something exotic. And if they get upstaged by somebody who is smarter and negotiated a better deal, that's life. Just to be clear, Uh, I mean, even Series E investors, even with this insurance they have on top of their valuation, they would still lose their money if it never goes IPO or something like that. Yes. Yeah, oh, wait, wait. How do you mean lose their money? I mean, they they could still lose their investment. I don't want it yes. to sound like it is yes. a guarantee. Correct. Well, Correct. There, there's no such thing as a 100% guarantee, but it comes close. I mean, Square could have closed. Well, yes. The company could fail yes. and never make it to the yes. public market. If the, yeah. if the entire company goes to zero, then all debt and all equity is worth zero. But what Greg and I are talking about is that with a debt investment, you you know, you, the company owes you the money. And so long as the company is operating, so long as the company exists, you're going to wind up getting your money back. And what we're saying is that a lot of these private rounds are much closer to debt than they are to equity. Of course, even if you just buy a pure bond, that bond can go to zero if the company winks out of existence. So, but so long as the company exists, a lot of these rounds are protecting the downside entirely. So they're... they're- to kind of to put a, a, a period on, on this conversation, I think one of the takeaways from the Square IPO is that you often see a, a lot of people in the press, uh, you know, kind of making fun of, of Silicon Valley investors saying, oh, my God, these crazy valuations, how they, can they think it's worth that? But there are these safeguards built into their deals where they are going to get their money. And that is sometimes lost upon a lot of the public who are looking at these from afar and just gawking at the, the and numbers. And it's often lost on, on the founders. One of my favorite stories in recent months is the story of Forbes magazine, um, which had a big venture capital investment from Bono, among other people. And eventually they sold. And the value of the magazine, like, you know, this is the media industry and what happens to the value of magazines, it goes down substantially. But the investor, Roger McNamee, had one of these liquidation preferences. And he said, well, if you sell, I need to get my money back. So Bono got his money in Forbes back. The people who lose when that happens is the Forbes family who gave away a lot of these protections for very little money and who then wound up selling their stake in the magazine to some random Chinese company called Integrated Whale Investments on the basis not of cash. They didn't get paid for it. They just agreed that they would get paid at some point in the future. Integrated Whale then failed to pay them and the Forbes family is completely, they have nothing. So one, I kind of want to turn this conversation to one other subject, which is coming back to these unicorns, right? Everyone was kind of looking at Square because they were thinking it was going to be a bellwether. It was sort of almost a referendum on whether or not we're in a tech bubble, whether or not you're going to continue to see these very pricey private valuations. To be entirely honest, I've seen a lot of contradictory conclusions coming at, you know, after what happened with the price popping um, and with the kind of low valuation to start. But one interesting point I'm kind of curious to hear your guys' take on is that in a weird way, the fact that this IPO is sort of disappointing um, could create more IPOs, could force more companies to go public because a lot of private investors are going to be a little bit more wary, even with this insurance that they can probably get their money. They're going to be a little bit more hesitant to put a lot of cash into a a, a late round investment. Uh, Do you think that's the case, that we're going to see more companies now trying to rush to go public or not? 
my guess would be that those that are <laughs> down the path enough that they're only like six to 12 months from that stage might rush now for that reason. But I think that for the vast majority of companies, it actually pushes valuations down and makes it harder perhaps to do their first, second, third round. I think it takes some of the froth away from the entire food chain right from the uh, start to the end, which may not be a bad thing in yeah, the end, at least I'm... in the sense that the better business models are to survive. I'm, I'm with Greg on this one as well. I don't, I don't quite understand the logic here. One of the very interesting things about the tech IPO market is that companies generally go public not for the main reason that historically companies have IPO. The main reason that historically companies have IPO is because they wanted to raise equity and they needed the money. And it turns out that it's easier to raise money privately than it is to raise money publicly. And I think that's probably still the case. And when you IPO, you're not IPOing because you need the money. You're IPOing because the original investors want liquidity and they want to exit. And I don't think that has entirely changed. So I don't think, I think what you're saying is that, well, if companies need to raise money, they're not going to be able to find it privately. So they're going to need to raise it publicly. I don't believe that public investors are more prone to throw money at these companies than private investors are, even now, even after this. And, you know, to me, it doesn't feel like a coincidence that, the, you know, Bloom is coming off the uh, private valuation rows at the same time the Fed is moving very close to raising interest rates. It has that feel of the uh, punch bowl being taken away. Now, I don't want to sort of like, you know, have the uh, Jaws music playing here and say <laughs> that, you know, the NASDAQ is about to once again go back to 1500. But maybe it is sort of like the beginning of the end for the frothier period of this uh, boom. It certainly I, seems nervous. I mean, they were nervous and that's why they put it down to nine. And they they lost a lot of money, presumably. Who lost money? Square. Well, yes, yeah, Square, was, Square could, have made, could have raised more money in its IPO. But does it need the money? Probably not. <laughs> They're still not profitable. So that's, and now, yeah, so we didn't I mean, even talk about their business model, but I'm still trying to figure out why they're worth that much money. I mean, I actually, uh, hey, I'm the treasurer of my uh, son's Cub Scout pack, and I have a great little um, uh, attachment for PayPal that does exactly what Square does, right? And I'm sure there's lots of other companies out there that are eyeing this nice little stream of income that Square is earning off of their business model and saying, hey, why don't I do that? Well, I mean, Square's tried to diversify. I agree. I, I don't know if any of us sitting at the table really could it give a good answer on why it's worth what the public markets are now saying it is. But yeah, it's it's yeah, up in the air. Okay, it's time for the numbers round, people. My number is 20. I read on The Economist this week that in France, where they're trying to bust up a number of potential terrorist plots, that it takes 20 security agents to follow a suspect 24-7. And that just brought to my mind, like, how uh, expensive and resource-intensive running a surveillance state is. So we've talked a lot about the human and political costs of these attacks. But a lot of how you evaluate the ultimate impact of these things is what impact does it have on your own society, right? I mean, when presidential candidates talk about deporting 11 million illegal immigrants in the United States, have they really sat down and done the numbers about how big a police force you would need the, the to answer do that? No. Do you think yeah. Donald Trump has sat down and <laughs> yeah. done any numbers He's never in, done in that. the last 15 years? And, and wouldn't it ultimately be cheaper, first of all, if you're fighting ISIS, to take out their home base and hopefully cut down on their ability to carry out these uh, attacks uh, in, in, um, in other countries? And also to ensure that um, as a society, you remain as unified as possible, irrespective of your background against terrorism, as opposed to, you know, trying to turn to these surveillance tools. 
My number is very close to Greg's, so I'd like to go next. Go. Mine is 25, which is the name of Adele's new album coming out. Oh, oh my God. I'm so excited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, by the way, she... Um, is that your number? Is the name of the 25. album? 25. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, okay. It is 25. Because, you know, her first it's not, album... It's not a coincidence. It's not some other 25 that, like... It is actually the name of the album. Yes. Your yeah, I, fig- her, I figured I could get away with she it. She did 19 when she was 19, 21, 21. when she was 21. This is her third album. Thank you, Jordan. There's lots of piano. Oh, I wasn't clear if you knew, Felix. <laughs> I thought maybe... I'm bringing it back. I'm, I'm bringing it back to the uh, Slate Money because uh, because it is related. There, She's not letting it stream on Spotify or anything else. Or Apple Music. Okay, is so this is, this is going to be yeah. my number, which is 1099. $10.99 is the amount of money that you're going to need to pay to listen to this album. To to my album? At 25? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. And this is a really weird thing in, in capitalism because having to download and locally store and move files around and deal with like bits and bytes and stuff when you're listening to music is a complicated and effortful thing which people don't really do anymore what the easy and the convenient way to listen to albums is to just stream them and normally what happens is that the more convenient and the easier and that something is the more you're willing to pay a premium for it but what's happening in this case is that the old kludgy way of buying it is the more expensive way and the only way you can do it whereas the easy and simple way, which is just paying Spotify $10 a month, is no longer possible. I will say there is some speculation that she might eventually put it on streaming. Oh, that, she certainly will. Yeah, eventually. that like that it'll it's not going to be like a forever kept you know kept off Apple Music or Spotify. So have if you don't feel like spending time at ten ninety nine, there's hold you can hold out a little bit. The the really interesting question yeah. here is, uh, and no one knows what the answer is. Yeah. But the interesting question is. Is there any reason, any empirical reason to believe that if you hold back your album from streaming, that increases the number of album sales? And no one knows the answer to that I'm gonna, I, I'm going to just go ahead and guess that it does. I mean, I'm going to buy the album and I'm going to pay for it on streaming. I think for a select number of artists, the intuition right now is that it is. That's, you know, Taylor Swift sort of... Has, Ta- Taylor has, Swift did it. Beyonce yeah. did it. Yeah. Now Adele is doing it. But... You know, there is a strong case to be made that what streaming does is it brings the album to a much wider audience and increases the demand for the album rather than decreases the demand. But the fact is, we just don't know the answer. Yeah. Have you listened to, to, to Adele's single? I've only heard uh, snippets of the, the new track called Hello, which is, sounds wonderful. Okay. Okay, so my number's Thanksgiving-themed, because why the hell not? Uh it's 30.4, which is the weight of the average turkey nowadays. That's up apparently 81% since 19... 30 pounds? It's a 30-pound turkey. I just bought a turkey it's, this it's morning. It's up 80% since when? Since 1960, when the average turkey was 16.8 pounds. It's, that's a real... That's a normal turkey. Yeah, yeah a normal... No, that, well, was no, fi- now, that was 55 years ago. I yeah, mean, like, it yeah, takes a long time to It has, but the point is, part. we've doubled the size of these animals through our, through genetic... You know, we have mutant turkeys, essentially, at these farms. Who well, I don't know. Maybe it's just better turkey. health. I mean, that's roughly the same rate of increase they, they, in the size of an NFL player, they, isn't it? They literally... They, <laughs> The 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 breeding the breeding males are so large now. They have such large breasts for the meat um, that 
they can't actually mate, so they have to use artificial insemination. Okay, let's stop there. That's <laughs> that is an image I did not that want to think is about. These poor turkeys. <laughs> wow! Can Happy we, Thanksgiving. Can we stop Slate money this listeners. now? <laughs> so, in case you were wondering what the connection was between turkeys and NFL players, now you know they've both metastasized since 1960. Um, that is it for us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. Do subscribe to the show. You can find us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store. Leave a review there. Write to us. The email address is slatemoney at slate.com. Thanks to Zach Dynastine, the producer this week. Thanks to Andy Bowers, the executive producer this week. But most of all, thanks to the one and only Greg Ip, whose book Foolproof is in... All good bookstores and Amazon. It is. All how, good websites. How much, how much does it cost on Amazon? Well, if you're paying more than $20, drive a better bargain. <laughs> so we will talk to you next week, Thanksgiving week, on Slate Money. So happy.